It is BGMC Sunday. We forgot the BGMC barrel. That's okay. They're already gone. That's all right. I wore my BGMC socks, but I'm not going to take my shoes off now. So somebody said, praise God. All right. It doesn't smell bad in here yet. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, for the rest of us this morning, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 1. We're continuing our series through James. We're titling it Together. James is writing to the church to tell them how to function together. We often will read the epistles and we'll, we'll read them and, and we'll take them as individual instruction. And, and they're good for that, don't get me wrong. But James is telling the church, it's the first epistle and first book actually, the New Testament to be written. And he's writing to tell the church how they are to operate together. Now, if you were unable to watch last week's message uh, or the week before, it is uploaded to YouTube. It's available to listen to as a podcast and all of that. So it's, it's there if you're interested and want to catch up. Maybe you missed, a, missed a, a sermon. That's totally okay. But we're going to go ahead and we're just going to dive into the text this morning, beginning in verse 19. It reads, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of a man does not achieve righteous, the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror for once he's looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be righteous and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless." Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Father God, I pray that just this morning your word just penetrate our hearts, that it just take us captive, Lord God, and that we just understand what you're, having a, what you're, what you're saying to us through your scriptures this morning. Holy Spirit, it's not the word of Jeff, it's, it's the word of God, the breath of God. And so let it be in our hearts and in our minds, in Jesus' name. When we read this text, you know, we could focus on one or two things, but really, if we really zero in on the theme of what James is telling us, it's something you've all heard me say many times before. Your life imitates your theology, we talked about theology quite a bit on Wednesday night at our, in our midweek uh, service. We talked about theos, meaning God. Logia, the other word, being our logic or our words surrounding the theos. Now that, that's a little over some people's heads. I understand that. But, but the class, I think it went really well. We understand that our religion is not our theology and vice versa. Those two things are not synonymous. Your religion is carried out in your theology. When you, when you understand who God is, your actions reflect that. What you know about God affects and impacts your life. And what James is telling us, really, if we want to break it down, is simply this. Our actions outside of the church reflect how we receive God's word in the church. In other words, our actions out there reflect how we receive God's word here. The church, as we're experiencing it in this moment, I want to clarify something because some folks, they get really nervous when I say this type of thing, but, but hear me out today. The church, as we are experiencing it in this moment, this is not for the unbeliever. It's not. Now, I say that, and some of you go, hmm, where's he going with this? 
That may be a shocking statement, but understand this. The unbeliever should feel welcomed in the church. The unbeliever, uh, unbeliever, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, the unbeliever should be able to attend a service and know what's going on and be able to say amen and understand and plug right in if they become a believer in that process. In fact, I, you've all heard me say many times the gospel should be a key part of every sermon because you never know if an unbeliever comes in, we want them to be able to hear that. So it's not to say that the unbeliever shouldn't be a part of the message, shouldn't be a part of the church service, but the church service itself is designed for the believer, for the Christian to come into the building, to come together, maybe there is no building, but to come together and worship God together. When we come together, we worship together, we grow together, This is not a concert, this is not a business meeting, and this is definitely not a lecture hall. It is a gathering of like-minded worshipers who are here to build up one another, encourage one another, and in some cases, if necessary, even rebuke one another. This mostly happens through the preaching of the Word of God, which we're told in our text we are to receive. And make no mistake, How you receive the word of God here is reflected in your actions out there. When we get his word, James is telling us, when we get his word, we do the work and prove the worth of what we know. That's the the message this morning in a nutshell. And the first thing we're going to see is that we're to get his word. Read again in verses, uh, verses 19 and 20. This you know, my beloved brethren, But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now look again at that very first sentence in your Bible. James starts off, he reminds the readers, they pretty much know everything he's already said to this point. That's what he's saying there. That's likely because they've heard it preached several times. It's also possible that as he spoke about trials and temptations and endurance, they already knew about that because they've not necessarily heard it from the preaching, but they've experienced it. They've lived it. Now, they might have known about temptation and how to deal with it. I imagine James is counting on the fact that Paul and Peter and other apostles have been to these churches and instructed them in how to deal with sin, what repentance is, how to move on from from things like that. Everything to this point, though, has been, for the initial reader of James, a reminder of something that may have been elementary to them at one point. But it's often the simple truths of our faith that we probably should run back to time and again and be reminded of the most. I say this all the time. Sometimes people say, Pastor, you use the gospel. You, you preach the gospel all the time. Yeah, Because, brother, I need the gospel to tie my shoes in the morning. I need to be reminded of Christ's death for my sins so I don't fall back into temptation every day. James knows this too. And so again, he's, he's reminding them, you guys already know this. And he reminds them of his love for them. He calls them beloved brethren. Now, he did this back in verse 16 too. We saw that. He, he said, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And that was part of a strict command, don't be deceived. But there's a slight difference in James's tone here as he begins this section of what we call chapter one. It's almost as if James is making an appeal to them now. It's not necessarily a question, but it's almost, if we were to translate this into modern vernacular today, it's almost as if he's saying something similar to, you know what I mean? You get that? You know what I mean, brother? He's not just emphasizing that everything he has said before comes from a heart of love, but everything he's about to say also, you're you're following me, right? That's what he's saying there. You're getting this. And you're going to follow me forward as well. It comes from a heart of love. But notice this. If he calls them brethren, what does that mean? We're on equal footing, right? If it's going to apply to you, it's going to apply to me. James says, if it's going to apply to you, what I'm about to say 
also has to apply to me. Much like the pastor of the church, everything that I preach has to also apply to myself. And James knows this is not going to be something easy for him to say. Some of what he's going to say is going to be very hard to hear. Look at the rest of verse 19. He says, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. How many of you hear that and go, oh, here we go. You don't raise your hand, please. But I know when I read this and I was putting the sermon together, I thought, great. Another time that the pastor gets his toes stepped on as we read through the text. Now, some people are naturally quiet and they are slow to speak naturally. That's just the way they're wired. And sometimes we hear those people and we think, oh, they're doing it right. They've got it. They've got it down. But you'll find oftentimes, are they slow to anger? It may take a lot to light that fuse, but it's a very short fuse, right? And once it does get lit, once that fuse starts buzzing, it's like Mission Impossible. Pretty soon, boom, they're going to blow up. So what does James mean as he, as he says, says this to us? Well, after all, unless your hearing has been damaged somehow and you are, are reliant on a hearing aid, or you walk around with your fingers in your ears, which I don't advise you do, you're always hearing things. So how is he telling us to be quick to hear? Well, how we hear matters. He said, be quick to hear. Jesus warns his disciples of those who he spoke of in parables. He said, because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he quotes Isaiah, where God told the prophet to tell the people, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive, keep on looking, but do not understand. What James is saying here is that when we are hearing, we're not just to let the sound reverberate within our cranium. We're not just supposed to hear it and let it die there. We're actively thinking about what is being said. Think it through. Process what you're being told, what you're being taught. Then, once we have been slow to think it through, quick to hear it, but slow to think it through, then be slow to speak back. Don't just fire off a response and don't just get angry. That word here in the Greek is akusai, and it means to actively listen. In other words, be thinking while you're hearing, and then be slow to speak. Proverbs speaks of this as well. Proverbs ten nineteen, he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs seventeen twenty seven, he who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. And that cool spirit is probably probably what James is thinking of when he talks about being slow to anger. This goes back to something we addressed last week. It's okay to have healthy discussion, healthy debate. Thursday, I sat with pastors and there was some healthy debate that happened and it got a little heated, I'm not gonna lie. And afterwards, I, I went to the guy that we, we kind of got in a heated topic and I said, hey, you know what, man? I'm game. You wanna do this? Let's, let's talk. Let's have this out. Pick at my sermons. Pick at my teaching. I'm, I'm, it's all on our website. He said, no, I really appreciated what you had to say. It's supposed to be that way. It's a good time for the body to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. It is not good when we're slow to hear and quick to speak and quick to get angry. In our marriage, sometimes I, I made this joke this morning. It's so weird that my wife will begin some of our conversations. Are you even listening to me? And someone heard that and said, Pastor, they were already, she was already talking to you. Yeah, I know, that is a joke. Sometimes she's talking to me, and, and men, some of you can relate to this, I'm sure. But I sit there and I think, I've already heard this. The characters are different, but the story is the same. And I've already, I already have an idea of what she's going to say, and I've already thought through at least five possible solutions. And the one thing that my wife has learned to say to me in those situations is, just let me get this out. 
Let me finish the story. Let me say this. I don't want a solution. I just need you to listen. If I want to make Jennifer mad, the first thing I have to do is just cut her off and start telling her how to fix the problem. Men, am I alone in this? Please don't nod your head for your own marriage's sake, okay? Church, I'm not always quick to listen. That's what I'm trying to get across. I'm sure many of you relate to this in some form or another, man or woman. Either you rush to a conclusion. Sometimes we rush to get angry. We rush to get upset. Sometimes we even rush to get hurt. But you listen, and sometimes we just want to advance the conversation, don't we? And church, that's what hurts us. And when I say us, I mean the church. We're too often listening just to give a response. We're, we're not listening to understand. And I've been guilty of this many times. And far, far too often, when we get angry, that's what hurts the church even more. James goes on, he says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The anger of man, by the way, ladies, is not just men anger, okay? It's not guy anger. It's actually probably better translated human anger. It's anger we all have that gets unleashed. It's anger unleashed and does not subside. That kind of anger does not achieve the righteousness of God because it leaves no room whatsoever for the love of God to operate within our hearts. The Bible warns us often of anger, not just here in James. Ecclesiastes 7.9, do not be eager in your heart to be angry for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Psalm 37, cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret, it only leads to evil doing. And of course, the Apostle Paul, we all love this, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It's not necessarily a sin to be angry, but it is a sin when the anger begins to control us and flow out of us as we lash out, we hurt others, we, or even in some cases, even worse, we turn our anger inwards at ourselves. We turn it into depression. We turn it into self-loathing, self-hatred, and even in some cases, self-harm. We can be angry in a good way. We can be angry at ourselves when we fail the Lord. We can be angry when we see the weak abused, when we see injustice. And it's okay to be angry if your dog messes on the floor. Don't go beat the dog. That anger should not control us. That's not acceptable. Anger that fails to yield to the righteousness of God is sinful anger. And anger quickly becomes bitterness, depression, verbal, mental, physical, even spiritual abuse. You see, anger that James is talking about does not settle and stop at just being angry. So like we saw last week, we should kill that sin before it starts. When we're tempted to anger, Stop. Take a breath. Be slow to anger. Slow down. Do you receive that this morning? Yes? No? You get that? Okay. Because that's what we're talking about, getting the word, right? We're hearing it. We're listening. We're hearing. We're getting. James goes on in verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. That's why I ask. All the things James has said from verses 1 through 18, you might know that already. But now, now be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, because the anger does not achieve the righteousness of God. And therefore, since it doesn't achieve that, What's James tell us to do next? He says, put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. What does he mean by that? Well, filthiness, we know that's not literal dirt, right? We can understand that. It's moral uncleanness. Those sins the writer of Hebrews warns us about when he says, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. That's the filthiness. But all that remains of wickedness how did that get there? They might read that. And it sounds like when we're, when we're hearing this, it might be like the, the, the Dorito crumbs at the bottom of the bag. That's all that remains, right? 
How many of you hear it and think of it like that? Like we're just carrying around some extra things we haven't quite gotten around to dealing with yet. Is that what James saying? James is saying to us? No. No, the wickedness he's referring to are the evil desires or the unholy intentions that maybe we've cooked up since we've began our new life in Christ. The key word in that passage there is all that remains. It's not talking about crumbs or leftovers. It's talking about the overflow a surplus of wickedness that is too much, is the Greek word parousiaean. Because in the believer, any wickedness is too much wickedness. One translation calls it <clears throat> superfluity of naughtiness. I could not tell reading that if it's trying to lessen or explain. It's not naughtiness. It's wickedness. And it's not all that's left, it's what ought not be there. Some translations, instead of wickedness, will say malice. It's very similar to the wording that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2.1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, we put all of that aside, we remove it, we cut it out of our lives. How? Well, you already know. You, you kill the sin while it exists as a temptation before it evolves into a real big problem. Then, James says, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. The word humility here means to be even-tempered or gentle. It's a sharp contrast to that unstable, double-minded person we saw a couple of weeks ago. In church, if I can be honest with you, this is how we should attend church every Sunday. This is our attitude as we step into the sanctuary every Sunday, as we come to worship together every Sunday. Every time we come together, I know the guy on the road might have cut you off on the way here today. I know the kids and the dog and things like that can be very taxing at times, but put aside all filthiness, whatever remains of wickedness, and come to church ready to receive the word implanted. This is referring to the gospel. This is referring to the message of Christ's death for our sins, his resurrection. This is what ought to be preached, ought to be taught, ought to be sang about. Peter commands something very similar in 1 Peter 1. Since you have in obedience to the truth... Purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. The message the pastor preaches should not be some motivational speech or a talk that gets you fired up and excited. It should be the word of God, which is able to save your souls if I'm not doing that, church, I'm not doing my job. But on the flip side of that, if I am doing my job and I am doing it right and you come to service on Sunday and you don't receive it in humility, then together we're still not advancing. But if the pastor preaches the word and the congregation comes and receives the word, church, we'll move like never before. You understand, this isn't a team meeting. Christianity is a team sport. I've said that before. That, that's a different analogy, but this is not a team meeting. You see, you have to understand, this is where the team wins, and this is really where the team loses, right here in the sanctuary. If we try, if we come here and we try to satisfy the flesh here, we will satisfy the flesh out there. If we come here and all we want is an entertaining gospel every Sunday, and hey, Pastor Jeff can be kind of funny sometimes, emphasis on sometimes. Notice nobody laughed at that. That's okay. But if you're coming for a comedy show every Sunday, you came for the wrong reason, and you're gonna have a, a joke of a gospel out there. If you come to church with the attitude of, I've just gotta make an appearance this month. I just want to go and get my jollies, my emotional experience. Or, well, I've got to go to church because that's what you do in the Midwest, right? You're not here for the right reason. 
And it's going to be reflected in how you live Monday through Saturday. But if we come ready to receive the word, when we leave, we will do the work the word prescribes in the world around us. You see, our actions reflect how we've received God's word. Second, we do our work. And when I say work, some of you might go, mm, works-based salvation? Huh? I was nervous about this when you said James, because that's all James is about. No, James is not about that. That's not where he's going with it. That's not where I'm going with it. Look what he says next, verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Prove yourselves doers of the word. Prove means to become or to behave in such a way. He's clearly saying you have to have a change in how you operate as a Christian. You're not merely hearers of the word. Prove yourself. Become a doer of the word. Doer, poietai is the Greek word, is not someone who just hears it and then one time goes out to the, the post office and sees somebody and says, hey, you want to go to church Sunday? No, okay. They are consistently doing the work. It's actually, it means someone who is active. Someone who's a maker, not made, or going to make, but they are consistently making disciples. It's not someone who simply does the word once, or eventually will get around to it. We are to be doers, constantly, always, about doing the work of the word. What's the word? The message, the logos, the message of the church, the gospel, in conjunction with what James has, has just said before this, with the mindset that we're hearing as a church, we're not just hearing on our own as ourselves but, or by ourselves, we're hearing this together and therefore we're going to be doing the word together, aren't we? If you come to church and you hear the word and the instructions, do what it says, if you come to church and you hear the preaching and you do nothing with it, you're not a doer of the word. Don't just be a hearer of the sermon. Do something. Do something with it. Church preaching is not just meant to inform us. That's teaching. Preaching is meant to move us. Now, much of my personal preaching is very heavy on information, very heavy on the exegesis and explaining the text and the study. That's on purpose. I do that on purpose. I don't apologize for that. But at the end, it's what we are to do with that information, how we move forward with that information that matters. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, and you probably remember the kids' song. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Remember the song? Wise man built his house upon the rock. Remember that? I want to say this. I've already told a few of, the, few of you to be ready for this this morning. Please know I'm not singling anybody out. But I have flip-flopped on a position, and I, I have to confess this to the church. I used to say, please don't tell me good message or good preaching after a Sunday service. And I want to explain why I did that. Because when I would hear that, when I would go to prepare a message the following week, there was always, always this little voice in my head, now how do I top that? Everybody liked that. How do I do better? That's a me problem. That's what I've realized. That's a, that's a Jeff sin issue that I had to deal with. And I've realized that it was very rarely ever said to puff up the pastor, but it was meant to encourage. And I want to say, I do appreciate that. If you want to tell me, hey, pastor, that was a good message. Maybe today's not the day to do it. But, but next week, or, or if you listen to one on the YouTube channel or the podcast, you say, hey, Pastor Jeff, that really hit me. Thank you. I appreciate that. It was a good message. Hey, I need to be encouraged too, Right? But if you really want to pay your pastor a compliment, get the word and then go do it. I cannot tell you how awesome it is when I run into someone in town, in town and they say, hey, so-and-so goes to your church, don't they? Yeah, they are the kindest, gentlest, nicest person. 
They were telling me about Jesus. They were telling me about the service. I want to check it out sometime. That is, that is really, I go back to my car and I don't know how to react to that sometimes. That's so powerful. That's amazing. Prove yourself to be doers. Otherwise, what is James telling us is happening? We're deluding ourselves. The word delude is the same as, it comes from the same word as delusions. If the pastor only ever hears, by the way, good sermon, that was some good preaching, brother, that was a good message, but there's never anyone doing anything with it, at some point the pastor has to stop and say, uh, was it really that good? How good was it? In the Greek, the word delude is uh, a very hard to pronounce word, so show me some grace this morning, but paralogazemini, <laughs> got it. And it's actually used twice in the New Testament. It means that we deceive ourselves, but there's a way that we're deceiving ourselves that word speaks of. It's referring to hearing a teaching, and in a very subtle way, it sounds right, it sounds good, but it's all completely wrong. Paul uses the same exact word in Colossians 2.4. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. In other words, we're deluding ourselves because we're hearing what is right, but we're doing what's absolutely wrong with it. That's the way James is using it. There are many people, by the way, who do preach for accolades, and I don't ever want to become one. But I would love to be a preacher whose congregation got the word and then does the work. And I think we're on the right path for that, to be undiluted. James goes on and he explains to us further in verse 23 and 24, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. This passage is pretty straightforward, so I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on it. But I do want you to look at that word look or looks. This is not just a quick glance in the mirror. This isn't a quick fix my hair and make sure that pimple hasn't come back and fix the stray beard hair. Ladies, you can't relate to that, I hope. This is not just a quick glance. This is a careful observation to look in the mirror and study yourself. Really look close and then just walk away and forget what you look like. Church, this is us when we hear a carefully studied, delivered message from the word of God, and then we don't act on it. It's the same thing. That's what James is telling us. We hear the study come out, and I want to be clear. I'm not just talking about preaching here. I listen to great preachers, by the way. I listen to some every week because I have to feed my soul. I have to have a guy challenging me. And if I hear a great sermon and it doesn't encourage me to action, if it doesn't take me closer to Christ, if I hear it and I do nothing with it, I'm a hypocrite. If I stand up here this morning before you and I suggest you do something with it. As I was typing my notes, I was thinking of a sermon. I sent it out to a few of you. Sermon by, the name, uh, by a man by the name of Richard Owen Roberts. The guy looked like he was about 110. But he preached with such passion. It moved me and challenged me, not just as a preacher of the word, but as a hearer of the word. And to be fair, he was preaching at a conference, a pastor's conference, where the sermon was filmed. And I thought to myself, if a man sat and heard this guy preach, and he goes home and he does nothing with the message, he's going to face judgment for that. The same is true for the church. If we hear the sermon preached and we do nothing with it, we're going to face judgment for that. We want to be stable Christians, right? We want to be active Christians, don't we? We want to be doers of the word. That when the rain falls, the flood comes, the wind blows and slams against this house, we don't fall because we're founded upon the rock. Jesus warns those who hear him and don't act. He warns them too. If you remember the rest of that song, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, in other words, aren't doers of them, will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. Church, this cannot be faith assembly of God. This can't be us. 
Verse 25 goes on, it says, But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. The perfect law, the law of liberty, what's that? Is it the Torah? Is it the law of grace? Well, in the Old and the New Testament, God's word is simply called the law. For example, Psalm 19.7, it's not talking about the first five books of your Bible. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It's not just the Levitical law, it's the word of God. It's the inspired, inerrant, sufficient word of the living God. Just because we believe in a law of grace, which Paul describes in Romans, it does not mean we're no longer held to the moral code or moral law of the Old Testament either. In fact, we believe that we're enabled by the Holy Spirit to keep the true law. Romans 8, 4, that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. James is going to revisit this later in chapter 2. So speak and so act as those who are judged are to be judged by the law of liberty. Well, Pastor Jeff is talking about the law of liberty. That sounds like a law from fr uh, of freedom. What do, we, what do we do with that? Well, Peter clarifies that. He says, act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of Christ. It's like we said last week. We're free from the penalty of sin, but we are also free from the power of sin. And while we're free from the Levitical law, we are not free to go back and sin. We're, we're to be freed from it. We're no longer slaves to the law, just as we're no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves of Christ, the best master, the Kyrios. Our Lord. James says if we remember this and we act upon the word rather than just hearing it, he says we're going to be blessed. And he's actually echoing the words of Jesus in John 13. He says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do what? Do them. Being a slave of Christ is exactly what Jesus was referring to when he said that. If we hear, if we receive, if we get the word, we should be doing the word doing the work that the word sets for us. And in doing the work, in doing the work, it proves the worth of what we've received, of what we know. And that's the third point this morning, prove the worth. James says in verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. If anyone thinks himself to be Religious. Well, that sounds kind of snide, doesn't it? When you first read that, I read that this week, and I thought, the nerve of this guy. He doesn't even know all the people reading this. But you know what he It sounds like he just said, you think you're so Christian? You think you're so religious? What James means is, that word religious, by the way, and uh, someone brought this up this morning. I'm glad I get to address this. Religious is threskeia. And it's that if you believe yourself to be one who follows the tenets of truth, follows the tenets of the faith, if you believe yourself to be truly obedient to the commands of Christ, that's good religion. That's the religion we ought to have. But if you think you're following the words of Christ, but you don't bridle your tongue, you deceive your own heart. That's what James tells us. If we think we're religious, we think we're following all the statutes, we're checking all the boxes, but we don't know how to talk to each other. We don't know to, how to have conflict in a healthy way with one another. If we don't know how to love one another through our troubles and through our disagreements, we invalidate our testimony. Outwardly, we may be practicing a, a Christianity that is top-notch, greater than any, anybody could ever see, but inwardly, we're deceiving ourselves. Because our religious works become nullified. They become meaningless. Now when James is, is talking about bridling the tongue, I want to clarify here, he's not talking about those social awkward moments where someone might accidentally say something out of ignorance and, and put their foot in their mouth. or He's not talking about the person with Tourette's. Okay, they can't help that. He's talking about the person who constantly, consistently lets that overflow of their heart just drain right out of their, their face. Later in chapter 3, he's going to elaborate on this topic. He's going to speak of the tongue as though it's, even though it's a small thing like the rudder on a great ship or a small fire that can set a forest ablaze. So I'm not going to go too much into it 
here this morning because we'll get to it when James does. But there's something to be said about the taming of the tongue, something about the power of the tongue, which Proverbs tells us. It says something very similar, actually, to what James is telling us in this text. The one passage that always comes to mind, and many people like to quote, is Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. But they leave off that last half. Those who love it will eat its fruits. People like to quote that, but they don't like to look at it in context. The writer of that proverb, Solomon, he has actually some more to tell us if we look at it closer. Go back up in your Bible. If you have a, your, one of your Bible want to turn quickly to Proverbs 18, you can follow along. Beginning in verse 19, he says, A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a citadel. Now the next passage says, With the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach will be satisfied. He will be satisfied with the product of his lips. Then death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Whose death are we talking about? Our own. We reap the consequences of what we say. That's what the, the writer is saying there. And you can cause yourself to be starved to death. Because your words have alienated people, a, a brother offended. He's not going to come around anymore. He's not going to help you out. He's, he's harder to be won than a strong city. You've got contention between the two of you now. With the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach will be satisfied. The consequences of the person who cannot bridle their tongue and unleashes that wellspring of their heart, well, they're invalidating their testimony first and foremost. They only hurt themselves. A person may speak against their church. They may speak against their pastor, against the board, against their brother or sister in the other pew. But ultimately, all they are really doing is spreading toxic air around themselves. Eventually, nobody's going to want to be around you. Nobody's going to want to hear what you have to say. They're proving themselves and proving the worth of their religion. By contrast, James says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. A believer with God-pleasing religion really helps others who are in need and, and does so in a way to keep themselves pure. They're not out being toxic. They're looking for ways to serve now, she's not out looking for places and, and areas to gossip or finding fault. She's calling up ladies whose husbands have passed away. And in our text, maybe their husbands have left them. And just saying, what can I do to help? How can I bless you? Jesus says it like this, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. James expands on that. He builds on that here. He doesn't just leave it to one another. You see, earlier, if you remember, James had called God what? The Father of lights. And as such, he's reminding us that God is the Father of all creation. The Old Testament is full, full of references of we should take care of the widow, we should take care of the orphan, we should take care of the widow, take care of the orphan. So James is emphasizing to us here, it's not just an Old Testament thing. It's not just an Old Testament command. Exodus 2.22, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. But then like James, the apostle Paul tells Timothy, honor widows who are widows indeed. It's something the church should seek to do. Naturally, we should want to do this. But it's more than that. James is not just saying that we have to do this. But it's something the mature Christian should want to do. It's something the church should want to do. When given opportunity to help, to serve, it's the church who should be first in line. It's the Christian who should be first in line. I'm going to say something, and I, I don't want to sound too pretentious here, but I'm very proud of the pastors of our, church, of our community in Lisbon, by the way. The, the Lisbon Ministerial Association. This past year, we worked very hard as churches together to build a benevolence policy for the sojourner, for the person who's traveling through. Maybe their car breaks down. Maybe they need a place to stay the night. Maybe they need a bag of groceries. And the people who are in town who maybe don't attend a church, we, we worked hard to work with law enforcement to get something in place for that to be available to people. 
Our church has its own benevolence fund each year. For those of you in our congregation, if you're, if you're needing financial help, come and talk to me. Come and, and Wes and I will sit down with you and we'll, we'll look at your finances and help you get on the right track, right? He's nodding or he's asleep, but he's not asleep. He's nodding, right? We'll do what we can. We'll help you out. I'm very proud of our board that made that happen because that's what we're supposed to do. Rather than spreading toxicity, a religion worth having is one that spreads love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. So we get the word, we do the work, and we prove its worth by our actions. And we're going to stop there this morning, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. And I want to ask you as a congregation, you don't answer this out loud, please, but I want you to ask yourself, what was the purpose today of coming to church? Did you come for the music? Did you come because Pastor Jeff is entertaining? I hope not, because I'm not that entertaining. Did you receive the word this morning? Did you get it? And now I want you to ask yourself this question. Now what do I do with it? I said this to the class on Wednesdays a while back. Every sermon I try to preach, I try to answer four questions about the text. First and foremost, what does it mean? Not what does Jeff want it to mean. What does the text actually mean? Two, why should the church care to hear this? And when you're in your personal Bible study, this, these are questions you can ask yourself. Why, do, why should I care about this? Third, where do I go from here with this? How do I apply this? And fourth, is this taking me closer to Christ? Am I reflecting Christ more after understanding this text? Church, today I want you to ask those questions. As we close in worship, I would challenge you to ask yourself, did the word get planted in me today? Did I receive it? Now what am I going to do to show how valuable it is to me? Another way we can be active out there in the world outside is in our missions giving. Every January on Mission Sunday, we do our faith promises, and we ask you to consider giving the missions. And inside your bulletin this morning, you'll find a small piece of paper that's a faith promise. It is anonymous. Do not sign your name on that paper, please. This is not sowing your seed money. I'm not telling you that if you fill this out and you give this amount, God's going to give you a new car or anything like that. I promise you giving is not going to guarantee you more money. And the pastor is definitely not going to be buying a new car anytime soon. This is just simply saying, I know we're about building the kingdom. And in 2024, I want to be about it with the church. I want to be a part of that with my giving. It does not have to be much. It just, we just ask that you be faithful with it. We use these to determine how many missionaries we can bring on board each year and how much we can pay them. So please, as we close this morning, I'm going to ask you to stand as we worship, but consider how the Lord may be leading you to give in 2024 as well. Will you stand as we close? If we're not doing this together, we're not advancing at the rate we should. And so I would really encourage you, find a place to pray this morning. Ask yourself, did I receive this today? What am I going to go do with this now? Father God, this morning, I pray your Holy Spirit is convicting us. I know, I, I know it is, Lord God. That we receive the word implanted and it stir us, Father. Father, I pray that you just motivate us, move us. Your word says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. Lord, that we're not hoarding the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but that we're using them for building the kingdom today. Father God, I pray you equip us and that we prove the worth of the message with our actions. Move us today, Lord, I pray. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen.